Dr. Wilson is the founder, president, and vice president of business and finance for Wilson University in Sacramento, California. He earned a doctorate of education from Nova Southwestern University, a Master of Arts in Religion from Southern California University, and a Bachelor of Arts in Bible and Theology from Christian Life College. Dr. Wilson has been involved in various capacities of ministry as a church planner, pastor, and evangelist, as well as a teacher providing formal training and instruction in ministry. He was the director and speaker of Harvest Time, an international radio ministry, and is the founder of Reach Satellite Network, a national satellite network of radio stations. Dr. Wilson established the Rock Church in Elk Grove, California, co-founded numerous conferences, has been a contributing editor to several magazines, authored numerous books, and is a member of the Society for Pentecostal Studies. Let's all welcome Dr. Nathaniel Wilson. Let's clap our hands to Jesus. Come on, let's love him. You're worthy, Jesus. We praise you. Bless the name of Jesus. What a wonderful name. What a wonderful God. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. Oh, let's love him. Hallelujah. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Elder, and thank you, Pastor Mayo, for uh, this invitation to be here. This is a, um, a great time here together, studying God's Word and uh, fellowshipping around the only things that we have that are of eternal value. And I have enjoyed, since the... Uh, uh, first presentation last night by uh, Dr. Jesse Galindo on the effects of technology upon the church. It'd be hard to find anything more relevant than that subject. And uh, what a great time we had last night and how insightful it was. And then this morning with a apostolic response to biblical illiteracy, um, in a practical sense, I don't know if there's anything we're talking about that's more important than that. Getting back to reading the Bible and um, uh, the, the areas that that can be done, the preaching, the church, the home. Thank you, Brother Haddon. And, um, and today, a, a unique approach to a biblical definition of separation from Brother Bo. Uh, what a... Uh, what an outstanding time that was, and a great time of discussion. Um, and I learned things, and I wrote down things that I'll preach. I'll never give him credit for them, but I'll preach them. Uh, well, maybe. 
Maybe I'll give him credit. And then uh, multiculturalism and the church, um, that also is probably as relevant as you can get right now in the world we're living in. And I'm excited to be in the church because it's the one thing that has the answer uh, to all this stuff. Amen. And uh, I'm excited for the future uh, with the revelation that the church has these answers. And then today, the biblical counseling in the 21st century church with uh, Dr. Blash. Uh, that was great. I got to thinking if, if, if my presentation tonight uh, for any reason would depress you, just run this room 13 times. Amen. And I'm looking at several of you. If you ran this room 13 times, you wouldn't be depressed anymore. You'd be dead. <laughs> Praise God. And, uh, yes, sirree. Uh, but that was great. Uh, Brother Blass, I, I, I wanted to say something when you get through. I, uh, Brother Blash and several other uh, professionally licensed counselors, um, uh, we all got together and established a thing called International Association of Soteric Counselors. The word soteric coming from the word, the Greek word for salvation. And um, so we actually have, and we're, we're reviving it now, and starting in January, but we actually have at the school a certificate program um, of three or four courses on, on uh, basic counseling, how people in the church can have ministry in counseling. And while he was giving us some of these <coughs> case studies today, particularly the one about, I think it was Linda, the 45-year-old woman, and, um, and uh, incredibly, uh, the unspeakably incredible story of how God delivered her, um, I just kind of shuddered, though, Brother Blash. I thought, uh, I'm going to have somebody... Somewhere, hear that on Holy Ghost Radio, and they're going to go try it. And it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. Because I've had several pastors meet me here and there and say, you know, I had some people take that course, uh, some people in our church take that course, and those courses, and said, um, it's terrible. He said, it's the people that need to be in counseling by people who've taken those courses, that's the people taking the courses. <laughs> and he said, it's chaos. They don't know how to screw a nut on a bolt, but they, they're out here trying to counsel people, and Holy Ghost told them to roll people up in a rug, and I don't know what all. But anyway. Uh, yeah, or run 15 laps. Yeah, right. The difference is you got to know if the Holy Ghost really told you that. That's the difference. So, so 
that was kind of the, the situation. So, um, tonight we want to talk for a little while about a, a subject that, of course, is core to everything that has to do with the Bible. There is no subject in the Bible that uh, is more... Uh, that is more uh, an attribute, if you want to call it that, or a characteristic of God than holiness. None. This is, this is, this is where it all uh, begins. So we're going to try to do this in such a way that um, I'm actually going to tell you the first part of this I had to do a lot of work on because I couldn't find any books. Usually, you know, you get an idea and if you know where to go to find the books, you can find somebody that's already had that idea. But um, uh, all of our, uh, all of the books I could find, uh, nobody made all these connections. So I thought, well, I better check again. So I went back and checked again. And um, uh, it's right, whether anybody else has done it or not, it's right. And so to, we want to make this presentation tonight and try to give some uh, conceptualization of holiness that penetrates behind uh, just giving a few words of definition that we all have heard before. So uh, let's start this together and see if we can't uh, penetrate into this subject a little deeper. Uh, Holiness, the first little section here is wholeness and holiness. And you will notice the way that they are spelled The words holy and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y and H-O-L-Y, derive from the same English root. And so to be holy is to be whole, to be one. Holiness is unity, integrity, perfection of the individual. Notice the the phrase perfection of the individual. That means to be whole, W-H-O-L-E, and the kind. The separation of the words holy and holy in the English language was intended to differentiate between a secular object being whole, while at the same time avoiding inappropriate inclusion of a moral dimension for an amoral object. In other words, it's an object that doesn't have it morality uh, because it's an object. However, is it possible that some important meaning was lost in the differentiation? When they made the differentiation between whole, W-H-O-L-E, and holy, H-O-L-Y, W-H-O-L-L-Y and H-O-L-Y was something lost. For something to be whole means that it matches the original, permanent, perfect pattern of the thing being observed. A pattern that resides aloof and inalterable in infinite ideality and perfection. That's what something is that is whole, W-H-O-L-E. The identity of anything is ensured by a comparison against the backdrop of its never-changing ideal perfection. To the degree it has become fragmented or lost part of itself, it is no longer whole. 
whether or not it is true, that is, by true I mean an authentic representation of what it is meant to be, whether or not it is true to its own perfect self determines the degree of its authenticity. To the degree its actual existence is not true to its essential self, it is marred, flawed, incomplete, or not perfectly true in perfect manifestation. But the only way to know this is by an ongoing comparison with its divinely created perfect image of itself. By dissolving the responsibility of connectivity of an existent thing to its own essential perfection, the thing loses the sacred, infinite identity and no longer discloses its infinite perfections. The very fact that the essence of all things lies in the unvarying infinite of absolute beauties and perfections automatically tethers all things to the sacred. In other words, everything that is made is made perfect. And so, when you take something away from its perfection, its perfection is made by God, and it's infinite, and therefore, it is sacred. Another word for holy. So in this sense, it doesn't matter what it is. If it was created perfect, then there is a holy characteristic to it that is tied both H-O-L-Y because it's tied to an infinite perfection and a holy W-H-O-L-Y because if it's in its infinite perfection, it is exactly as it was meant to be. And therefore, it is whole. We'll go into this a little bit deeper. Thus, nothing created, animate or inanimate, human or otherwise, can divorce itself from connection to the infinite and sacred holy and remain whole. Because the reality of wholeness of each thing is anchored in the infinite. For example, this idea of wholeness is clear in the requirements for Old Testament animals sacrificed and the physical wholeness requirements of the priest themselves. If you recall, the only animals that could be sacrificed was ones that had no blemishes, no flaws. The only priest of the family of Levi that could be in the priesthood had to be with no blemishes and no flaws. If they had blemishes and flaws, they were no longer holy, H-O-L-Y. They were not holy because they were not whole, W-H-O-L-E. And they were not sacred enough to do those duties or to be sacrificed as a sacrifice to God because they did not match the infinite perfections of sacredness. Okay? So this is seen in these Old Testament sacrifices. Thus, whole, W-H-O-L-E, and holy are forever conjoined, and all things created by God, which includes all things, God created all things, have an eternal connection to holy that cannot be abrogated. Now, this wouldn't make any difference to secularists, 
But to people who understand that God created all things, everything has this basic level of holiness when it is whole. And so to be whole and holiness cannot be separated. You can't dissolve holy, H-O-L-Y, and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. A tree, for example, can be presumed whole without being holy. You could presume, well, trees aren't holy. They're just, they can be whole but not holy. But how does one judge that it is whole? The answer is that judging it to be whole requires a knowledge of what is the shape and form and look of a whole tree, a perfect tree, one that's not marred, twisted, scarred, stunted, and so forth. To find this wholeness, one must visit the repository of infinite patterns, perfections, and beauties of trees. Defining the perfect tree requires awareness of the pattern of perfection for such a tree. That pattern resides in the infinite, wherein is the unchangeable holiness of all things. If this were not true, there would be no way to prove that a thing is what it is assumed to be. Discovery of whether something is whole always requires contrasting the existing condition of the thing to the pristine world of perfections. Thus, in this sense, separation of wholeness and holiness is only possible where there is no understanding of existences and their source in essences or perfections. The biblical position is that man as he exists has fallen through transgression from his essential self. Therefore, he lives fragmented. He's part alive and part dead. He's been attacked on the road of life. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. He's been robbed. He's been left half dead. He is taken by the Good Samaritan, representing Jesus, to the inn, the hospital of the time, to recover. The injured man, representing the human race, is hurt, broken, incomplete, wounded, and partly dead. Those two scriptures there are Genesis 2.17, And the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. Ephesians 2.1 is dead in trespasses and sins. But now he's rescued, he's provided help and given a path to restoration by the coming of the Good Samaritan who has both the will and the means to provide a path back to wholeness. Quite remarkable is the fact that a primary meaning of salvation is to be made whole. That's not a secondary meaning of salvation, that's a primary meaning of salvation. Basically, to be saved is to bring the broken existent self back to its essential state of completeness. This process includes deliverance, restoration, healing of wounds and distortions. To be whole is one's existent self, its being in finite fallenness, that's what existent self means, matching perfectly one's essential self, pure, undiluted, undistorted, infinite. Such a person is holy and whole. And so Paul says, And the very God of peace sanctify you, notice his play on words, sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is no wholeness without holiness. And holiness in the Bible means moral wholeness. Coming to pure holiness is to come to perfect health and freedom from any taint 
of the unholy. That there exists an awareness and knowledge of perfections is evident. To know a hand is crippled presupposes knowledge of the perfect hand, else one would not be aware that the hand being viewed is less than perfect. Causing that which is flawed to match the pattern of its perfection is the biblical meaning of healing. And that's why when you read the Gospels, there is no word used to more describe the healing miracles of Jesus than he was made whole. That word is used repeatedly. He is made whole. That is not an accident. Salvation is thus a restoration, a making whole of oneself. It is a return to a perfect holy image, undistorted, pure, held apart from imperfections and uncleanness. This, then, is to be as the church corporate, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, meaning whole. This makes clear the reason for scriptural restrictions and prohibitions that are designed as preventatives and safeguards of the wholeness, the healing, and the perfections that have occurred in the life of the individual who is holy, holy, delivered and transformed by salvation. Such deliverance is total. It is of the body, mind, soul, emotions, and spirit. Deliverance is being freed from debilitations and oppressive powers and being filled with power greater than these. Man had lost his relationship and connection with God, which is the ground and source of all completeness. Restoration of this connection is literally a resurrection of the human spirit from being dead in trespasses and sins. In this light, spirit infilling is a restoration. Laying against this condition of individual holy Holiness is a scripture revelation that the condition of the world is one of unwholeness, unholiness, and unwholesomeness, and is thus identified as this present evil world. To be born again is to receive the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the word exhorts, be ye holy, for I am holy. In the holy is life, and in the unholy is destruction. It's not an accident that Satan is identified as Abaddon and Apollyon, the destroyer. Where God is making whole is the nature of Satan to destroy so that nothing remaining is whole and thereby holy. Imparted holiness. The fact that human holiness is imparted holiness is true not only of man, but of the wholeness, holiness of all things. Man is whole, holy, by virtue of God's imputation of his own holiness upon those who are called out. Thus, personal holiness is really God's holiness in those who are spirit-filled and led. Essentially, there is no holiness other than God's. However, after spirit-infilling, God considers the imputed holiness of Christ to be that of the individual and exhorts the believer to be holy, for I am holy. Holiness spoken of in this manner means to live in such a way as to see the outgrowth of God's holiness manifest itself to become complete, and so as to not desecrate the dwelling place of God, which is our lives. To live in holiness is to keep oneself in alignment with that which is the true, the pure, the whole, the right. 
When the Bible declares God is holy, it is declaring the wholeness of God, that is, a God with no flaws, no uncleanness, no deceit, no weakness, no distortion, and such like. Thus, to be whole, to be holy, body, soul, and spirit, is to be like God. Holiness in the Old Testament. The standard understanding of God's holiness is usually described as separation, transcendence, and infinite purity. But in certain contexts, it can mean totally devoted. The concept of separation is based on the explanation of the Kadosh, the holy, includes the idea to cut, which indicates separation. It is to identify phenomena or to designate experiences different or other than normal everyday experiences. In other words, holy things are not common things. The primary criterion that marked these events and experiences as separate from everyday phenomena was the perceived possession of a mysterious power, which on the one hand evoked a sense of wonder, fascination, and awe, while on the other hand it produced a sense of fear and terror. However, when the word is studied in all of the Old Testament references and compared to uses in contemporary languages in the surrounding area of that time, the meaning comes out primarily consecrated to or devoted to. The word is essentially a positive word that also includes relationality. That is, a holy thing belongs to the God who's perfect, who is whole, and is thus to purify, to consecrate, to dedicate holy to the personal pursuit of the perfection of that which it is the image of, that is, God himself. Thus, separation is unto, not firstly, from Holiness in the life of the believer arises out of surrender and separation. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Secondly, the holy individual lives separate unto God and separate from anything that pollutes or distorts one's identity as the temple of God. The scriptural record reveals that which is holy is always set apart from all uses other than God's service and will. Whether it was an animate or inanimate object, being holy always meant it was used solely for the holy purposes of God. The Old Testament typifies this reality. Everything connected with tabernacle worship was set apart, made holy exclusively for the service of the tabernacle. It was holy, sanctified, separated, holy, called out, and consecrated. This set-apartness does not belong solely to humans, for it was also applied to inanimate objects, as well as to the ministers of the tabernacle. Even the dishes were set apart, or kept separate from all other uses. They were not only to be unbroken, but also used exclusively for holy purposes. The priests were likewise consecrated and set apart with their lives dedicated exclusively to the service of God's work. The Old Testament ministers of the tabernacle, the Levites, were given no inheritance in the promised land because they were to be holy, set apart, or consecrated to the business of God's service. The ministers of the tabernacle were to live for the service of the sanctuary from the tithe of the people, which is also holy, set apart, and consecrated to the business of God's service. To be separate unto God, in part, simply means to remain in the role for which one is created. Anything that violates this distinct purpose of creation is considered unholy. 
For example, the dishes for the tabernacle were created for that purpose alone. Thus, to use them for any other purpose was forbidden. Likewise, the priest's garments were to be used only as instructed and for the purposes also stated. This same rule applies to everything that is holy. This, of course, has sobering implications for how the disciple of Christ handles one's own life. This is an important point. The individual can become bewildered by the yawning mouth of the universe and its immense spaces and planets and wonder what importance can be attached to the mere infinitesimally small speck of matter which is each individual. However, in contrast to that view, the body, soul, and spirit which is me is unique and special and of all things in the universe, solely my responsibility. There is no division in reality between the spiritual and physical. One's spirituality is measured by one's treatment of matter, that is, our own bodies, our own selves. It is a gift from God and also from all those who for thousands of years have gone before and struggled physically, mentally, and spiritually and survived and handed on to each present individual a body, soul, and spirit. This universal connection creates unavoidable, sacred responsibility. Being holy begins with the understanding that everything about the Christian is holy. This includes body, soul, and spirit. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as a holy nation. The individual believer is spoken of as the temple of the Holy Ghost and is exhorted to be holy. Just as the Old Testament commanded the people to carefully avoid disease, corruption, and all sorts of uncleanness, even so is the New Testament believer exhorted to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Holiness is sometimes erroneously spoken of as being inward and outward. Actually, the holiness of God permeates, permeates every part of one's life, starting in the human spirit, then permeating the mind, the soul, the emotions, and then the body. And even as far as is under his control, the believer's environment. And the very God of peace, sanctify, means to make holy. Sanctify you holy. Make you holy, holy. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These three areas, spirit, mind, body, must all be holy, separated, clean, anointed with the Holy Ghost. And I didn't have time to write what goes with that. I mean, it, it didn't have room to write that. This is not enough space to do that. Uh, but there's a lot to be said about that. The nature of the knowledge of holiness. Knowledge of holiness is not like every other form of knowledge, such as mathematics, science, or biology. One must first divest the mind of this idea in order to gain understanding. In those pursuits, the student can stand off in detached observation. For example, mathematics as a form of knowledge is completely abstract. One can engage in its study with absolute detachment. Astronomy is also abstract, but less so because it demands contemplation of existing matter. When one studies engineering, dealing with concrete things is unavoidable, so it's a little less abstract. Thus, one travels through forms of knowledge which increasingly move toward intimacy and personal engagement of the knowledge itself. We may come to the study of psychology or theology and discover that it has become so personal that as one gazes into it, 
The one doing the gazing recognizing, piercing, recognizes piercing eyes within the form of knowledge, intently gazing back. Knowledge of holiness swings the pendulum in each of us from the total abstraction of secular forms of knowledge to the final opposite position in its purest form, which is occupied by the form of knowledge of holiness. At the opposite pole to mathematics, knowledge of holiness is not concerned with abstract concepts, which are not at all concrete or material. Quite the opposite. It is concerned with how persons assume responsibility for the material living world in their own particular time and place. It is here that the object of our research in holiness turns the tables on us. When we try to look into its eyes, we find that those eyes are gazing into ours, scrutinizing us, locating and burning out the impurities behind our motives for being interested in the subject. It is terrifying for the hunter to suddenly realize he is the hunted. Where we are today, taking the initiative in pursuit of the Holy One, we will shortly realize that it is the Holy One who initiated the pursuit. Awakening from such a pursuit at Bethel, Jacob explained or exclaimed, This is a terrifying place. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. But now, there is no turning back. Such is holiness that once it is encountered, it is no longer possible to escape its reality. For this reason, worldly people give holy people a wide berth, knowing that holy people are dangerous. One can engage in natural forms of knowledge while remaining aloof. A gap remains between knowing and being. However, in connatural knowing, such as the pursuit of holiness, to know what holy is, one must be holy. The interaction is unavoidable. From that point, one either ascends or descends, depending on one's response to the encounter. No more is there a neutrality. To continue to the ascent is to move toward more abundant life. To descend away from it is to deaden existing life and move toward death. However, the natural scientists have proven that even though a great breakthrough often is accompanied by fear, the breakthrough itself provides new and deeper insights into the wonders of life and creation. So it is with holiness. At the end of life, there may be many reasons for sadness, but the greatest of them all is consistently the sadness of having not been a saint, a holy one. Holiness is about the requirement of giving up everything for the pursuit of holiness. This pursuit always leads us first to death. Luke 9.52 makes clear that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This was to set his face toward death. It is a death of everything that is not the pursuit of God. It is relinquishing all. It is aligning every action of life with that pursuit. It affects every action, every thought, every aspiration, every appearance, every use of one's body, mind, and spirit. One comes to realize that what seems to be impediments to finding that holy oasis are, in fact, usually the stepping stones to that holiness. The Mount of Temptation is the confrontation of Christ's greatest weaknesses and struggles as a man. It is a revealing of the struggles of the mind of Jesus, but he stays committed, stays separated to God's purposes, 
and stay separated to his calling. In the book of Revelation, the Holy One gives a white stone to each overcomer. A stone with a name written on it, which is known only to the recipient. This indicates that every stone is unique. No two are alike. As is consistently true of the spirit world, our fellowship in heaven depends first upon this exclusive singular act of receiving a new identity. The identity one has as a holy one, which has been shaped and constructed by the constant moving forward in holiness in the midst of buffeting and suffering. Like him, may it be said of us, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. No human is individual alone. To be human is to be part of the community of humans. The need for human friends is not a weakness. Holiness is perfected in the world and in community. The word companion consists of com, which means with, and pan, which means bread, or sharing bread with another. This is also intrinsic to holy living. Acts 2, 42 through 47 was not a chance gathering. The Christians gathered to hear the apostles teach. Such was a school for holiness. To be responsible is to be responsible for the sake of others. Even in prayer, communal prayers hold the mind in a way that it may wander in individual prayers. Jack Revere, an intellectual in France at the turn of the 20th century, would sit at the table and not eat, sometimes getting up and walking out and slamming the door. He was refusing to eat to draw attention to himself, making his whole self bow in idolatry to his immature egotism. The Western world, in various degrees, has with its idea of a self-made man, which I might say the existentialist uh, exaggerated until it became a part of our thinking, with its self-made man teachings, fostered this congenital immaturity that hinders growing ever more deeply into communion with other persons. One must at some point stop hugging his adolescent aching hunger and begin to grow into an integrated wholesome person, whole, whole, wholesome, who not only derives support from the community but also offers it. One's overall idea of God is not a divinely given idea. But it's a fragmented human idea. We don't have a perfect idea of God. Ours is fragmented. Understanding God and holiness is a deep business enterprise. Penetrating the depths includes sacrifice, which comes from the word sacred and means to make something holy. And yes, suffering. Is the shattering of one's egoist, egotistic opinion, even about God and oneself, with sorrow and suffering? Is this God shattering repeatedly? This false perception? Could this not be, in fact, one of the marks of his presence? And only suffering could do it? Even Jesus said in the garden, this is a translation, Bewilderment and amazement overcame me, as though the eyes were open to something never before even imagined. Suffering is a taking of initiative out of our own hands. We should perhaps stop thinking of our suffering as a problem and recognize it as a mystery that has to do with holiness. 
Is there any other way to be changed from the superficial, self-satisfied person other than suffering? Maybe the reason people who do not see holiness as sacred also do not suffer is because there is no divine activity occurring, no passion for holiness. On a great tree, there are branches that are bruised, some hanging awry, some broken. But they don't reveal a problem within themselves. Instead, they reveal the struggle of the tree of which they are a part. The collective effort of the tree needs them. And therein they have a role as integral as anyone. For the community of faith and holiness is not a vase of artificial flowers, but rather that of a great tree of community. And what about the greater pain of rejection, the sting of malice, the wounds of hate? These can only be countered by the realization that beyond argument, the Holy One travels in the direct midst of evil and suffering. Here we depend not upon the failing analytics of the mind, but on the holiness of our hearts before our holy God. From Russia, in the labor camps during the 1930s, Julia de Basobre heard storytellers share the legend of how St. George proved unworthy to be the slayer of the dragon called falsehood. He was told by Christ that he was not worthy, so the legend goes, because his knowledge of evil was still too limited. The storyteller would always end by saying that only those who have themselves drained every drop of the cup of evil may, after their regeneration, shatter it without fear of bringing woe upon themselves or the world. Who can hear this without thinking of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, bearing all the dregs of the world upon his fragile shoulders? We are talking about holiness. Holiness is the great word in religion. It is even more essential than the notion of God. Because real religion may exist without a definite conception of divinity, but there's no religion without a distinction between the holy and the profane. Thank you, Dr. Wilson, for that tremendous presentation. We're now going to open this part of the presentation for questions and critique. We again want to remind you that we want to hold our questions to around 60 seconds. Be mindful of the relevance of keeping the, qu the questions and associated with the presentation with decorum and courteousness. Are there any questions, comments? I think some of you are chickens. <laughs> Dr. Blash. Get this microphone on, please. Take this one. 
test, test, there we go. Um, Daniel Blige, St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Wilson, thank you for the presentation. Could you take a few moments and contrast what you presented with the traditional presentation of holiness and the average apostolic church? Um, I, I don't think the average definition in the apostolic church is wrong because in most cases it revolves around the word separation. And it's impossible to even try to define holiness without including separation because, as I've mentioned there somewhere, uh, the word separation of the word holy in the Old Testament uh, includes as one of its basic ideas to cut as to cut away. Um, and I think probably in a typical apostolic church, that's what we think of. We think of holiness, you know, a lot of times we think, well, we, our people only think of holiness as outward appearance of, of what I would call holiness in relationship to a theology of the body. Uh, but that's not really true. Uh, we do think of holiness in relationship to a theology of the soul and of the spirit. For example, when we say, um, don't think evil thoughts, that's holiness. Uh, don't cuss, that's holiness. That's separation from things that are either common or vulgar or immoral or whatever. And so, another way that we do have a, a, a good, healthy sense of holiness is in relationship to a theology of the Spirit. That the human spirit is to be reserved uh, for holy uses. So you have to find out, just like you have to find out what the attributes and characteristics and senses of the body are, to know if those senses are being used for holy purposes. Uh, for example, sight. Touch, spell, hear. So we care about the music we hear about because we don't want holy stuff coming through that sense. We care about what we see. I'll set no evil thing before my eyes because we don't want some wrong thing coming in through our eyes and so forth. Touch and so forth. So that is, um, that is senses of the body that are indicative of what is entailed in a, in a biblical theology of the body as it relates to holiness. Well, we have, we're pretty good on holiness of the spirit, too. The, the attributes and senses of the spirit wouldn't be sight and touch and taste and so forth, as in the body. But attributes of the spirit are worship. Attributes of the, and, and so an, an unholy use of worship would be idolatry. So if you just stop right there and you say, so if I'm jumping up and down and clapping and celebrating and putting posters in my room of someone for their physical accomplishments, when the Bible says that God does not take pleasure in, the, uh, in a horse or the legs of a man, athletics, so, if I'm worshiping, if I'm clapping, if I'm leaving church early, so as many backsliding apostolics are doing, so they can get to the big game Sunday afternoon, then 
then I have to stop and think. Uh, this isn't just some conservative people in the Epsilon movement are saying we don't go to games and some other liberals that say we are going to games. No, no. This is going to the core of a theology of the human spirit that worship is reserved. And there's other factors there, but I'm just on worship right now. That worship is reserved for God. And adulation is reserved for accomplishment in holy things. Because we're reserved to holiness. That's what we're reserved to. And so immediately you see how these practical things that we're facing every day in our world, how they go right straight to the core of what holiness means. So um, worship is a sense of the spirit. Thanksgiving is a sense of the spirit. So it would be worship as opposed to um, idolatry. It would be thanksgiving as opposed to what did God get Israel for? Murmuring. And they wandered 40 years and they never got to the promised land because of murmuring. And so thanksgiving. So any of you here today that are grouchy about what you've got, you're sitting in this room and you're grouchy. You've got those clothes on that you've got, and you've got two feet, and your belly's full, and you've got the Holy Ghost, and you've got friends, and you've got fellowship, and you've got the Bible, and you're grouchy? So, so we have to keep our minds holy in terms of thanksgiving, and so forth. So, I mean, I've got a list of all, the, all of the attributes, the senses of a spirit and how they are used for holy purposes or unholy purposes. The same with the mind. So, think on these things. That's senses of the mind and, and how they are used. So, overall, I don't know that we articulate it exceptionally well all the time, but our conclusions, because we have the Holy Spirit, I think, Dr. Blash, um, our conclusions come out correct most of the time because they're a they're, they're, uh, they're an automatic uh, emergence of holy hearts. Does that make sense? I hope I answered that. I got a little carried away there. Dr. Wilson, I'd like to pose a question. You piqued my interest. I do believe in this. Just are there, there are the five senses of the human body. You talked about the senses uh, Thanksgiving, etc. Do you have that list? You said you had a whole list. Is there a possible that we could... Uh, yeah, I couldn't get it in 3,000 words, so I wrote one in 4,000 words. But I, I can ask a question, and you can give them to us through question. Can't we do that? So you're fixing it where I can do that. That's what you're doing. Yes, sir. Well... They're written in prose form here, so let me see if I can just find them for you real quick. At least these will give you some examples of, of, of senses of the Spirit. So I already gave you worship. I gave you thanksgiving. These are, these are, these are senses of the Spirit. Faith, as opposed to unbelief. Unbelief is unholy. That's why unbelief is sin. Just like destroying the body, smoking cigarettes. So you wouldn't smoke a cigarette, you'd die before you smoked a cigarette, but you'd have unbelief. So you got this, this holiness that goes through the whole body, soul, and spirit. That's what, that's what we read that Paul talked about, that God sanctify you holy, W-H, holy. 
Sanctify means holy. Let God make you holy. Holy. Okay? So let me give you a couple others here. Faith. Hope. As opposed to hopelessness. So you, 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 your husband comes home from work and you're sitting there. Uh, honey, what's the matter? Oh, man, I burnt supper. I think I'll just go kill myself. I mean, that's letting bad spirits, or I guess I'll just kill your happy spirit by being a grouch the rest of the night. So, whatever the case is, you, you have to control all that. That's, you have to say, no, no, my spirit stays holy. I stay in thanksgiving. I stay in hope. I stay in faith. I stay in divine love. So somebody mistreats me. Somebody spits on me in the elevator. Somebody beats me up. Somebody burns me at the stake. I mean, this is what's happened historically. How did those people do that? The holiness. They, they stayed in the realm of holiness, in divine love. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. They were totally above those people's ability to be able to, to hurt them and to destroy their holiness. They wouldn't let themselves get down and start cussing those people out. They said, no, 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 that's not holy. And, then, and so you've got love instead of hatred. Hatred is the opposite. So how many times, and this is what I meant earlier, Dr. Flash, by we do a better job probably than we think we do. How many times do we preach against a root of bitterness and hatred and, and, and all of those things? All of those things are the antithesis of love and peace. He said, I give you this, this peace as opposed to constant unrest. All of these are, um, and I would say that prayer is a sense of the Spirit, human spirit. And so we use that also. So now, now that doesn't mean that the mind and body does not participate or is incapable of participating in those things, they do. Because everything we do, for semantic reasons, we are sectioning off as though there are three parts of a human being. And, in a sense, there is. But you can't divide them off and over here analyze the spirit and over here analyze soul and over here because the mind and the spirit are all working and interacting and the body's interacting and so forth. But you, you understand that. I'm just saying it for... Um, because I wanted to, I guess. So, so um, uh, while we're right there, let me just give you, here's some attributes of the soul, which is the seat of emotions or the mind, the seat of logic. Uh, that's also to be sanctified unto God. So, so here's a little deal about that. If someone uh, talks to you about there is no God, atheism, or evolution, or something else. You have to be careful about giving your mind to them. You already know that that's not true. But if you voluntarily give the senses of your mind to the unholy, then you're just 
putting yourself vulnerable to all kinds of things that can take place. So somebody says, so you're not an open listener? No, I'm not an open listener. I got on a helmet of salvation. And I keep it on my head. And if you tell me there's no God, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to waste my time listening to you. Oh, but we got reasons. I don't care nothing about your reasons. You don't know God. I know God personally on a personal basis every day. So all of this, that's, that's holiness. So uh, here's some attributes of holiness uh, for the mind. Were you going to ask that next? Brother? Yes, I was. Okay. Um, purity of thoughts. In contrast to filthiness, filthy thoughts. Second Corinthians seven one, Romans twelve two, Philippians four eight. Uh, the mind is to be separated in sobriety as opposed to lust and foolishness. Sobriety doesn't mean you don't smile in the Bible, but sobriety is 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 in distinction to lust, silliness, and Foolishness. And so uh, there's, there's all kinds of things you can say about that. Um, uh, I'll just read this. I don't know. There are many things which attack the purity of the mind. The constant barrage of violent and immoral sexual themes used to market products as well as to entertain is a constant source of evil. Pictures of filthy conversations, sexual sins, sensual gratification is piped into homes via television, internet, as well as literature. This is injected into the thought processes of millions of people, thus gradually increasing tolerance for evil in society and consequently destroying values. The holy mind, heart, and home of the Christian must cast all such from within, maintaining the unmixed joy and purity of Christ. One's home environment should reflect the Spirit of God, be filled with His holy presence. Every class of Christian is admonished to be sober, the bishop, their wives, the aged men, the old, the young, the women, the young men, all of them are advised to be sober. These admonitions have to do with the soul and the mind, which is to be kept protected, separated to proper thought patterns by the helmet of salvation. We're exhorted to gird up the loins of our minds. Put a girdle on your mind so it doesn't just, you know, whatever happens when you don't have a girdle on. Which means to exert one's will in refusing to allow such things to enter and dominate one's mind. I guess I blew the rest of that line. Nobody's listening to that. <laughs> oh, that was kind of funny with it. Okay. So, here's bondages of the mind. The bondage of fear as opposed to the spirit of liberty. The bondage of carnal reason as opposed to the revelation of the Word of God. Spiritual revelation. Carnal wisdom is considered in the Bible to be unanointed, unholy, unclean, as opposed to the wisdom of God. Imaginations are to be cast down in favor of the knowledge of God. Fear is to be rejected and replaced by a sound mind. Wrath is rejected for joy, gentleness, meekness, temperance, peace. All of these are contrasts contrast between a holy mind and an unholy mind. And then if you get to a theology of the body, you get into what we call standards. And they're there because the body is also holy. It's the part of us that is matter. And matter matters. So you've got the people, Brother uh, uh, 
Bo probably was thinking the same people I was when he said it. You're talking about the people who say, and this is the charismatic line for being able to participate in sin while having the Holy Ghost. Their line is, well, you just don't understand that the physical and the spiritual are two different things. No, they're not two different things. It's holiness of body, soul, and spirit. And so you can't go out and commit fornication with the body and still be holy in the spirit. So that's why the Bible points all this out to us. I mean, this is pretty elementary. It's amazing. We still have to talk about it, but we do. Pastor Mayo. I don't believe I've ever heard anything as profound, as probing, and as pure as this presentation tonight. And I wonder if we could just all lift our hands and ask God to fill us afresh with His Holy Spirit. Jesus, let's just love him a little bit. God, let this thing work in me. Oh, God, in the name of Jesus. Oh, God. Oh, 
Go ahead, Dr. Wilson. Uh, I just want to tie this to uh, uh, Brother Blash's presentation today. To be whole, to be holy, is to be whole. And wholeness is the whole core subject of counseling and of preaching and of teaching till we come to the perfect stature of Christ means we're moving towards wholeness. Wholeness is the issue. Don't ever forget it. Wholeness is the issue. And so Linda had 21 pieces of herself that she had lost. And through the Holy Ghost and ministry, careful surgical ministry, apostolic ministry of the Holy Ghost, Linda was made whole. At the point she was made whole, she was made holy. At the point she was made holy, she was made whole. Inseparable. So this issue, this is the business that we're in, is making people whole. Because they are fragmented in sin, separated from God. In many cases, separated from their best selves. They are in bondage. They're not whole. Salvation means to be whole. And let me just give you an example of how important this is. When we talk about, uh, let's just take this for example. We talk about women wearing makeup. So somebody says, oh, come on. That's not a big subject if she puts a little color on her lips or a little blush or eyeliner or STP stickers on the side of her head. I mean, you know, it's, it's no big deal. It's just, um, well, I'll tell you how big a deal is. It's a multi-hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of million dollar industry, stay with me, that has to do with telling people you're not whole. You've got to have us and our product to be made whole. And until you buy our product, you'll never be whole. And our product, when you paint our product on, you may not be whole, but at least it'll make you look whole. And that whole industry is based on selling you the idea. I started to say you women, but it's some... There's some male gender that, I started to say men, but there's some male gender that gets into that. The whole idea, the whole sales pitch, I wish I could get this across. The whole sales pitch is, you're not good enough. It is a guilt-based accusation against every woman that they can get to with their advertising that you are not good enough. You need us. And God is saying, ladies, 
are you going to say that when I have made you whole, are you going to, in unbelief, believe a world that's telling you you're not whole when I've made you whole? It's not a small thing. If this is a small thing, you wouldn't see people so amped up about it. It's a big thing. Because it has to do with our image of self-worth. It has to do with our sense of being whole. All of that is tied in. All of that is tied in to this. And all of that is behind all of this. And so, can I be whole in the image of God or the image of Maybelline? Which one will make me whole? And if God makes me whole, then what is the idea that I'm supposed to have something else? And if the glory of God... Now, I can tell you, I've seen some women that didn't wear makeup. That they should have. Here's why. They should have because... They had a rule in their life that they wouldn't wear it. But they didn't have any Holy Ghost in their life. And that's about as ugly as you can get. (laughs) But when you got the Holy Ghost, that's the glory. Wait, 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 wait. That's why you can't be some isolated, right-wing, bigoted foul-spirited preacher that preaches about holiness and castigates everybody and demeans everybody and you're the only thing on God's pompous earth that matters uh, and you're preaching your people holiness that if they go by the scriptures that you preach that's all they need? Oh no. You're just making ugly people and you're making bad worse. You've got to have the Holy Ghost to make this thing work. You can't have the form without having the dynamic. That's the polarity that is necessary. You've got to have the Holy Ghost. Why don't we just stand and clap our hands and praise Him right now. He's worthy. Thirteen laps. Thirteen laps. I'm kidding Okay, you may be seated. I'll quit preaching questions. Just tell me when to quit. This is an apostolic symposium. This is part of our doctrine. This is how we do it. You can't have the Word without the Spirit. I saw a hand over here. I think that's the first hand I saw over there all day long. Let's grab it while they are got a question. So in this symposium, we've talked a couple times. Can you give us your name and where you're from, please? Aaron Mayo from Spokane, Washington, Cornerstone Church. Thank you. Uh, We've talked a couple times in this symposium about how holiness and separation are connected. My question is, how much of holiness is, should leadership allow that's, 
based on the crowd mentality versus actually taught. And what I'm talking about specifically is new people who come to our churches that do things that portray holiness out of this crowd-based mentality and have not fully understood it. How much of that should you allow as a leader? But they may. You've got to define the word understood. Because there is coming to them a spiritual awareness. We'll use that instead of understood. There's coming to them a spiritual awareness that this is what holy looks like. So I wouldn't disparage that for a moment. And I would let that enculturation become a stimulus of a number of stimuli that brings people to a holy lifestyle. Now, I still think they need teaching and all that, but, but that's moving them. in. God's using that. It's part of the Acts 2, 42 through 47 thing. It's, it's with bread. They're, they're together. They're in, the, they're in the family of God. And they're learning from their older brothers and sisters, just like you and I did if we had an older brother and sister. Dr. Blash has a question. Um, Daniel by St. Louis, Missouri. I'm curious um, because I don't want to do the work and you've already done it. When when you researched this, um, did you notice a particular period in time where there was an explosion of writing about holiness or not so much? And then who's writing about holiness? Um, like when I look at the references they seem to be, there was some from the 60s, 80s, 2000s, so you've got this nice sampling. But question number one, did you notice that there was an explosion of writing about holiness at any given time? And then who, who's writing about this? Well, the explosion of writing about holiness was um, John Wesley. When the Reformation uh, progressed past Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, um, those other 1500s Reformationists. And when it got to John Wesley, he focused on holiness. And he had some understandings of it that I think came... Uh, from a long, I think the whole Reformation led up to 1906. And, I, and it's amazing to me it took 500 years, uh, 400 years, to get to Acts 2. It took that long to get back. So you got 1,500 years away from Acts 2, and then you got 500 years getting back to it. So I will tell you this, there's not a single shadow of a doubt in my mind that the full completion of the Reformation is the apostolic message that we preach. You can't go any further back than the first day of the church. That's it. And, um, um, yeah, I hope that I answered that. Gentlemen, on the back row back here.
Brother Blash, uh, I have a book that I did not quote, but that was the most academic book I found. I'm sure there's others. Holiness Past and Present. The editor is Stephen C. Barton, B-A-R-T-O-N. I'm not saying I'm agreeing with everything in it because I didn't study it deeply. And it's published by T, as in Tom, T and T, Tom and Tom, Clark, London and New York. So that ought to give you enough to find it. Go ahead, sir. Um, my name is Mike Kent from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Um, I have um, I have a kind of two-part question, and um, I can't help but think about um, the link through holiness, because you said that you can't separate wholeness and holiness, and the Bible declares God as holy, declaring His wholeness. And to be holy or whole is to be one. Therefore, holiness represents and cries out the oneness of God. And that being said, if you agree with that, um, can you separate any part of holiness or wholeness and the practice of it from the church without dismantling or disfiguring the image of God and attacking the very oneness of God? What was that last sentence? Um, can you separate any part of holiness or wholeness practice from the church uh, without dismantling or disfiguring the image and attacking the very oneness of God? Oh, uh, no, I would agree. You cannot. You cannot. The, the ideal, the, we talked at the first part what sounded like gobbledygook to some of you, I'm sure, the first three pages or so. Um, um, but, you know, you, gotta, you, got, you can't just not use stuff because it's going to sound like gobbledygook. You've got to say it. And people hear it and they don't get it. But then they read it again. And so learning is not just, you know, you and I used to read on a fifth grade level. That's what a newspaper is. So if we don't get it the first time, we say it doesn't make sense. Look, anything we wrote up here, it makes sense. You just got to get enough sense to get it. And you have to expand your mind. And we get so used to wanting everything in a baby bottle. It's like my cousin was a great big fat man and he laid on his back and he drank Pepsi and he liked to read in the bed. So he put it in the baby bottle. He weighed about four or five hundred pounds. Four or five hundred pound grown man that rode a Harley with a baby bottle. So you, you, that's a. <laughs> that's a no-no. So here's the deal: to be whole is to be perfect. Okay. So everything that is made has a perfect pattern. Or we wouldn't know what it was. And we judge it against that pattern. So, the best example is you and I. So, here we are, and we are imperfect. You know it. It frustrates you. It frustrates you whether you're imperfect shooting a basketball, or whether you're imperfect 
high jumping or whether you're imperfect as a husband or wife or whether you're imperfect on your job or whatever it is. It's a frustration. And we know what perfection looks like and we know where we're at. And so there's always a gap between the two that we call potential. And so that gap of potential, as we close it, the gap towards potential, God has no potential to get better. God's already perfect. He is not going anywhere. He's already there. But you and I work towards being a perfect man. So, and we work toward being the perfect man, which is Jesus Christ, which is the only perfect man there ever was. And so, as we work towards that, we move closer to perfection. To the degree we are not that, to that degree, we are reflecting an imperfect image of God. To the degree that we're not perfect, we're reflecting an imperfect image of God. So all of us reflect to one degree or another an imperfect image of God until we get our glorified body and we get transformed forever. And then we will never be Jesus Christ. I'm not even saying this in the Bible. You have to pay the bucks to get here to get this part. We will never be Jesus Christ. But when we are perfectly in, in the image of God, then we can say, He that has seen me has seen the Father. That doesn't mean you'd be the image, it doesn't mean you'd be Jesus Christ, but it means that you would have reached perfection. We're not going to get there in this life. The reason I'm not saying that to Mike is I've got enemies. <laughs> and I know what they do because they've done it so many times. They will go away and they will say, Oh, he's saying he's going to be Jesus. I'm not either. <laughs> we have time for about two more questions, and I see this sister back here with her hand up. Can we get a microphone to her, please? Yolanda, is it on? Yolanda with Cornerstone. Um, I was just going to comment on, and thank you, Dr. Wilson, for that. But I was going to comment on uh, Brother Aaron Mayo's question uh, as a testimony to, um, I came into this straight out of the world. And, and when it came time for the man of God and I had only been in the church maybe six months or so, roughly. And he said, it's time to show you the word of God, separation, holiness. Everything within me rejected it. But I said, I will obey it. I do not understand it, but I will obey it. Understanding it came much later for me, and that was 17 years ago. So I just encourage you to... Go forward with that mentality with those of us that come out of the world. When we see that strong, confident, holiness standard, as much as we rebel internally or outwardly, uh, it is something that if we want it, we will reach for it. That's very good. And obedience is taking a beating in America. Yeah. 
and it's taken a beating in the church. But obedience, there is nothing higher on the list for successful living for God than obedience. Just obey. One more. Over here. isn't really a question, but a comment, and perhaps you could... Can you give us your name, brother? I know who you are, but... Jeremy Painter from... You, I don't know where anymore. <laughs> uh, several years ago, I was reading William Shire's Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, and he got to a a moment in his description of Berlin after the war had pretty much been decided. The Berliners knew that it was over, and Shire mentions that the, um, that the city uncharacteristically, normally being very sober-minded, very modest, uh, the people... Uh, began to party. Um, the parties got uh, to the level of bacchanalias. And um, the, the city basically came apart through partying before uh, the, uh, the American army ever arrived, the Russian army, the American army. And, um, and uh, he said that there were scenes of of uh, uh, banquet halls full of, again, a very characteristically modest people. Uh, these banquet halls are full of naked women and men partying all through the night, drinking and um, whatnot. So uh, I got to thinking a little bit about that, and it's, it's kind of haunted me a little bit, that image. And... Um, I started to wonder if perhaps modesty and holiness um, isn't a kind of belief in the future. If it isn't perhaps a belief or a, a, a resident hope in tomorrow. People uh, who save money, they do so because they believe in tomorrow. People who do not save money, the future is too unreal for them, uh, too ephemeral. Um, I, I think that a, a modest people, or an immodest people, people who, uh, uh, who, have who have lost all sense of holiness, don't believe in tomorrow anymore. The world is going to end. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Do it right now. And I think that's where America is. And, and I, I, I think that the, I think that the, the growing um, uh, indecency of our culture, the depravity of our culture, is just the lack of a belief in tomorrow. And this is a great opportunity for us apostolics. Our modesty, our holiness, is, it's hope. My response to that, Brother 
painter was going to be, so what we have is a corruption of hope. Hope is made unholy by hopelessness. No sense of the future. Thank you for that. Could I read one quote from John Wesley? Because this is what we're facing as apostolics within the apostolic movement. This is what we're facing. I'm reading the quote. The holiness message hath no greater enemy than those who once embraced its tenets. For having forsaken righteousness, they cannot bear to forsake alone, but are not and will not rest content until they bring others to their estate. For as long as there is one left standing, they stand condemned. Let's all stand. Give praise to God for a great presentation tonight. Let's lift our hands and give Him the praise that He's worthy of.